I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. Two thousand sixteen was a year of surprises, a presidential election that stunned the pundit class, an unexpected vacancy on the Supreme Court, Britain's exit from the European Union, and perhaps most shocking of all, the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series. Developments in the world of education policy may seem a bit predictable in comparison, but if we stretch the calendar a bit, we can include the agreement in Congress on the Every Student Succeeds Act, which President Obama called a Christmas miracle as he signed it into law in December 2015. I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and joining me today to discuss the year that was is Andy Smerick, Resident Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and President of the Maryland State Board of Education. Over the past year, Andy has kept a running list of the best commentary on the events of the day within the field of education and beyond, and he's now called that list to identify 100 must-read articles on the shape of 2016. Andy's essay introducing the articles which first appeared on the AE Ideas website, is available now at educationnext.org. And he's here today to walk us through a few highlights. Welcome back to the EdNext podcast, Andy. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me, Marty, and thanks for the introduction. Now, your list is a bit eclectic, wide-ranging, featuring your favorite writing, not just on politics and education, but also on sports, music, popular culture. So we won't be able to do justice to all of it here, and I'd encourage listeners to check it out in its entirety on our website. But the list starts where it has to, with the election, and it highlights two articles that attempted to give voice to Trump supporters early on in the election cycle, one by David Blankenhorn in The American Interest, the other by David Frum in The Atlantic. It's often said that education was not a top-tier issue in this election, but was there any connection between the election outcome and education? Well, I think that um, education either contributed to or is a reflection of the bigger things that were going on in 2016. And if you read the Blankenhorn article or the From article or a couple other ones that I highlighted, and there were some articles I didn't even get to highlight, stuff by Peggy Noonan or Bill Galston, that 2016, at least from the voters' point of view, it seemed <clears throat> excuse me, to be um, uh, some sort of like primal scream, like they are furious, or at least some number of voters are furious that their institutions have failed them, that the economy and culture and society have changed, that they just weren't feeling agency to change things. And as things were changing without their um, influencing them enough, things were going in the wrong direction. And so, so many of these articles spoke to this, like it seemed like a fundamental truth that people wanted more power. There's lots of research in education, in um, uh, the, the private sector related to democracy, saying people are willing to tolerate bad results to a certain extent, as long as they feel like they had some agency over how we got there. And when people are the angriest, it's often because they get bad results and they felt like they had um, no ability to change things. And so if we think about education, I think there's something to be said for the NCLB era, the race to the top era, a bunch of like technocratic, like best and brightest generated schemes that told us that our schools were lousy and that smarter people than us were going to fix them. Um, 
And when those things didn't work out as promised, you could see how a lot of Americans, like teachers and parents and um, administrators, were saying, God, this is just part of the bigger story of things aren't going my way and people were doing these things to us. And so some of the same sort of broader uh, trends around governance were also going on in the education space in ways that contributed to the broader development that we saw. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's exactly right. That um, what I'm taking away from 2016 and the next couple of years is there's a reason why conservatives in particular believe in decentralization and the principle of subsidiarity and um, uh, diversity of options and pluralism and limited government, because those are the things that lead people to be able to control their own lives and their own institutions. And not only do they often come up with the best answers, it enables them to feel like they have some sort of sway over the things that matter most to them. And that's what leads to happiness or at least contentment. And that leads to one of the other articles you review that caught my eye, one by James Fallows in The Atlantic. Not a conservative, I think, but uh, it has the title, How America is Putting Itself Back Together. And you describe it as the ultimate homage to the politics of decentralization. So what case does he make for the virtues of decentralization? Well, uh, this was, um, if I had to pick among my favorites of these hundred articles, this article may be like in the top five. Um, it was, I think it got way too little attention and it happened at the beginning of the year. And it was so perfectly suited for the times with like anger and frustration and technocracy and Washington's institutions failing us and so forth. And Fallows, although like the, um, the frame of the article is, I think he and his wife using a small little airplane they own to travel to little towns all across America. Um, that seems a little bit elitist, but the the heart of the story is, despite all of like the nastiness in Washington D.C., despite failures on you know big banks and on Iraq and on the response to Katrina and all these all these big institutions and D.C. based things failed us. The, this article argues that when when local people are in control, whether it's small communities or series of schools or mayors or uh, a group of businesses, they are not only happy in their communities and they feel like they're doing good stuff, the results are creative and interesting and really promising and hopeful. And so the story, like it's a cover story in The Atlantic, actually makes the case that despite all of the bad things happening, if you look local, people are actually quite happy. Now, the lesson for all of us is, are we willing in D.C.? and other um, places of elites to say, yeah, we're going to trust fellow Americans to run their own lives. And that's one of the questions, I think, coming out of the 16 election. And politics also feels much healthier at the local level, maybe in part because people have sorted themselves into more homogenous communities in terms of partisan affiliations, but also because I think, as Harvard economist Ed Glazer likes to say, there's no Republican or Democratic way to sweeping the streets or clearing right. the snow, uh, that there's some practical governance changes that uh, provide us or challenges that provide a source of accountability. Yeah, there is something that is just often so nice that like uh, governors are often way less ideological than U.S. senators and mayors are way less ideological than um, governors are. The closer you get to the ground, even if these people have executive positions, that philosophy seems to matter less. And what matters is like the day-to-day -day lives of people. And it's 
um, maybe this isn't giving them enough due, but less about philosophy, even less about long-term um, political strategy than it is about the tactics of human lives, like in real time. And um, I mean, these these leaders are often loved by their people because they're be, they're seen as independent and just trying to be like good representatives and good leaders. It's quite encouraging. So let's use that to transition into your section on education, which is the bulk of uh, the list, uh, or at least its largest section. And, you know, you begin that in uh, with a, an article by Education Next editor Rick Hess in the National Review that lays out an agenda for K-12 school reform organized around the concept of decentralization. So what does healthy decentralization look like in the K-12 space? Yeah, I put together Rick's terrific article and Mike McShane's terrific article that he did for um, Education Week, and together they seem to outline the basic contours of conservatism and how it can be applied to schooling, about decentralization, about choice, about incrementalism, about small, about gradual, um, about uh, a skepticism of uh, central uh, technocrats with grand schemes. And these two articles, although they're different in length and tone, um, you can see how, like especially in hindsight, now that we're sitting here at the end of um, 2016, how they they seem to they had their finger on the pulse of some of the problems of education and maybe some of our politics beyond that. And I juxtapose those articles with one, a great article by the reporter Caitlin Emma from Politico, who did this profile of John King um, when he was just coming into office as Secretary of Education, who comes from a different, a very different philosophical school uh, about a sense of urgency, about federal power, about rapid change, about big sweeping change, about certainty of our answers and a lack of modesty and uncertainty. And those three pieces together just struck me as, you know, um, two different worldviews colliding. And hopefully one is on its way out after eight years of being ascendant, and hopefully the other worldview is going to be ascendant. One of the points that Rick Hess makes in that article that you included is the uh, divergence in the ratings Americans assigned to their local schools and the schools of the nation as a whole. This is a pattern that we've documented in the Ednext poll repeatedly. And oftentimes reformers use that finding to make the case that assessments of the nation schools are giving us the accurate indicator, the ones that show us we really have to get our act together, and that we should be skeptical of people's uh, delusions about the quality of their local schools. Rick doesn't head in that direction, and I think I've heard you suggest that maybe we need to pay attention to what people are saying about their local schools a bit. Yeah, and I uh, have totally been in that camp, and it's just like an epiphany of mine over the past year or so of trying my very best to understand what's going on in our politics, especially related to education, that, yeah, you put your, your finger on it, which is for years, people have rated high, relatively highly their local schools and have rated really lowly the nation's schools. And many of us have said, oh, well, people are parochial. They're going to give their local schools high ratings, even though those schools are actually pretty lousy. And people are way too critical nationally because things are far away. And we see a similar phenomenon um, if you look at the data on members of Congress. People always love their member of Congress, but they hate other members of Congress. Uh, 
So this isn't uncommon, but what I've been wondering, given um, my increased skepticism about grand plans and uh, unified measures of performance and technocracy, is maybe it's the case that all these people who are really happy with their local schools, even when our unified metrics at the state level on reading or graduation rates or math are pointing in the other direction, maybe their happiness isn't something um, that we should so quickly look past. It is probably the case that practitioners and parents and via the wisdom of crowds that they know a whole lot more than um, wonky people or government folks or researchers know, or at least they know things that we don't know. And so I'm increasingly um, fond of like efforts to dig into um, what are the measures, what are the things that we can't measure that these folks are responding to? Why do they like their school so much? What's popping in their minds that isn't being captured by the measures and indicators we're using? And as we talk about skepticism about grand plans, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention one of the articles from Education Next that you included by Paul Peterson entitled The End of the Bush-Obama Regulatory Approach to School Reform. That article appeared in the summer 2016 issue of the journal. And in effect, I read it as Paul's valedictory essay as he was stepping down as the journal's editor-in-chief, really arguing that Bush and Obama shared more in common than they differed, and that what they had in common was this attempt to rely primarily on a top-down system of regulation through test-based accountability as the engine of educational improvement in the U.S. Well, that's right. And he, uh, well, first of all, uh, Professor Peterson deserves credit for like uh, such amazing work with Education Next and all of his students. Um, he's just a giant in this field. And so that article was terrific um, because he matter-of-factly states what I think a lot of other people would have struggled to say, which is this is not just the Obama era. This is the Bush-Obama era. It was a certain approach to how we thought about um, the reforms needed and the role of the federal government. And as I've been thinking about it, yeah, both administrations um, saw things that they liked, especially at the local and state level, and simply supersized them. We like tests. We like accountability. We like teacher evaluation reform. We like common core. Let's just make the federal government force that stuff, or at least put a whole lot of money and energy behind it. And I think only now in hindsight can we say, like I alluded to at the earlier, there is a reason why conservatives and lots of people involved in education believe in localism, believe in subsidiarity, believe in decentralization, believe in slow and gradual, because when the federal government gets involved and when the federal government forces things and when the federal government presumes to know more than everybody else, not only is the clunky federal apparatus going to get in the way, it just makes people deeply frustrated. People want to know that they are in charge of what their kids are learning. They want to know that they're in charge of how principals and teachers are being evaluated. They want to know um, why these tests are being created. And the more Uncle Sam does that stuff, you're just going to raise the blood pressure of people. And I think we came to this conclusion way too too late. So let's transition then to the local level. And one of the places where the most interesting developments in 2016, really over the past decade, continued was in New Orleans. And you include a series of articles on New Orleans. What, why is it important to pay attention to what's happening there? Well, I mean, it is remarkable. Um, the few articles here 
I tried to pick the couple that not only were good, but also um, showed the different elements of why the city is important and how they fit together. So one is the fact that charter authorization there has been successful. Um, another is the fact that uh, it appears that um, not only have these reforms been highly successful, according to Doug Harris, um, they've been as successful, if not more successful, than any other kind of city-based reform that we can measure. And when I talk about these reforms, it means um, going away from the idea of the exclusive territorial franchise, getting away from the idea that the traditional district has to be the owner-operator of all schools and all reforms have to run through it. That New Orleans, after Katrina, decided that um, they're going to move mostly to a network of charter schools that are going to be, instead of run by the government, they're going to be run by nonprofits and overseen by the government. And then kind of the coda of this story is it appears that the district, which was only running about 5 or 10% of the schools um, as of last year, has now decided that it is probably going to turn its remaining direct-run schools into charter schools, allowing them to be independent. And this is literally a century-changing event. It will be essentially the first district that has decided uh, a local school board that is going to entirely get out of the business of running schools. And so the new order of operations will be the state creates an entity, a local entity, a school board. That school board is in charge of accountability, but not operations of schools. All of the public schools are going to be overseen, run um, by local nonprofits, and the authorization and accountability is going to come through the government. It is transformational. I, I honestly never thought that a district would, um, of its own volition, move in this direction, and yet we're seeing it in real time. And we've had John White, the uh, superintendent of education in Louisiana, on the podcast to discuss the sort of changes that restored local control to Orleans Parish, but also nudged them in the direction that you just referred to. Um, John White makes an appearance in your list along with his former boss in New York City, Joel Klein, on the benefits of carefully replacing persistently failing urban schools. Why is this a topic worth tracking? Oh, this is so important. And frankly, we need to credit um, John and Joel and their team, people like Chris Surf, who just showed titanium backbone when they were doing this. I mean, for ages, literally generations, it was assumed that every neighborhood had to have a district-run neighborhood school, and that school would exist in perpetuity. And what we never really considered is what happens if that school is persistently underperforming and we can't fix it. If you just adhere to the idea of kids assigned to schools based on home address and one school per neighborhood and a school that can't be fixed, you've locked yourself into this system where kids in perpetuity are going to be assigned to these schools that aren't working. So John and Joel and Surf and others finally said, no, a part of our reform strategy is going to be replacing schools, closing those that don't work and creating new schools. A lot of people call it the new school strategy. And it is not an easy one. And I've written a whole lot about how it can be done poorly or how it could be done well. But the upshot of this is when it's done well, um, this study that John and Joel 
special we're writing about um, shows that in New York, and now we're seeing in some other places, that a closure and smart replacement strategy can actually um, not only expand choice, but lead to better student outcomes and attainment levels than had they not done it. So although in the short term it can be politically toxic, in the long term it may very well be exceptionally good for kids. And so they wrote up this um, strategy that they used when they were in New York together. Yeah, and I should mention that the study that they refer to is actually one that was published in Education Next by James Kempel uh, in New York um, on school closures in New York City. So uh, I like to think that we provided them with some of the raw material to to make that argument. Oh, completely. Yeah, Education Next is um, where all the important stuff happens. So, uh, and I think this topic of what do we do in situations of persistent failure is really important in the context of the conversation we just had about the benefits of decentralization, right? Uh, even if you want to err on the side of local control and providing people with agency, um, it does raise the question, I think from a constitutional perspective, the question for state governments um, as to what you do when this approach falls short. Well, this is one of the big, and it may ultimately be one of the big questions I struggle with in my career or many of us struggle with, which is there are a bunch of competing principles at play. So like the the state government has constitutional legal responsibilities to make sure schools are provided and that they succeed. So the state and the state pays a whole lot of money in these communities. So the state is on the hook and is an important investor. But as a matter of principle and as a matter of practice, they delegate that responsibility to local governments, these districts to run schools. And then families also should have agency. So everyone has a stake in this thing. And what happens when a school isn't working? Um, what happens if the families like that school? Is it right for the state to come in and close it, even if there's popular backlash, because the state has constitutional responsibilities here? Um, is it right for the state to trump one of its subsidiary units, the district? Um, or do we always say, listen, whatever families want, they're always going to be right. So maybe the state is wrong if it's assessing the school to be failing. Like None of this is easy, especially when you get into the idea of who ultimately makes this decision. Is it a locally elected board? Is it a mayor? Is it a state superintendent? Is it a state board of education? Are they independent families? And so this implicates things like democracy, local control, state constitutional provisions, a uh, 100-year history of like district um, authority. I mean, this is tricky stuff, and thank goodness we have some good experience and studies on the ground, but I think we are much closer to the start line than the finish line when it comes to figuring out or at least sorting out a bunch of these issues. Yeah, I think those are the big questions as we head into 2017 and obviously beyond that the field of education policy will be wrestling with, and the Every Student Succeeds Act provides a context in which hopefully we'll have some experimentation to learn from with different approaches. That's right. And the fact that we have a, um, a secretary of education, at least a designate, um, who appears to be, let's just say, leaning strongly or firmly on the side of empowering families. And so uh, generally, we see a nice balance when things are working well between state authority, local authority, and um, the parental authority. And I think, like you said, ESSA does a good job of creating a framework where that can happen. And hopefully, the secretary, once confirmed, will push that along. Um, but this may be a, a challenge that we constantly have to wrestle with, a balancing act that will shift from year to year, decade to decade. So I want to close. We're about out of time. Uh, 
by asking you about an article by Kathleen Porter McGee, which you refer to as a great news story for Catholic schools. This is a topic you've written about in education next. Uh, so what caught your eye in this article? What is the great news for Catholic schools? Well, uh, people should know Kathleen. She not only has been a great writer for Fordham for a long time, she's now the superintendent of a network of Catholic schools in New York City. Um, they're all longstanding, in some cases a century old, some of these um, inner-city Catholic schools, and she's overseeing a network of them that are um, they have separated themselves from the traditional structures of the diocese, the archdiocese, and of their parishes, and they're just trying to do things differently. And what we've really seen over the past 10 years, and Kathleen and her network are a good example of this, of um, trying to bring some of the best thinking of organizational change to this longstanding institution of inner-city Catholic education. And so it means thinking differently about governance, about human capital, about accountability, about choice. And it's fascinating. And I wrote this for Education Next at least once, that many of us kind of assumed that given the Catholic schools were in the private school sector, that they would be inherently more nimble and less sclerotic than traditional district bureaucracies. But I think in hindsight, we've seen that over 50 years, call it from the mid-1960s until recently, there the, the Catholic school system was resistant to change despite all these huge societal and educational changes that were happening around it. And in some ways, the content, the belief in every child, the focus on um, basic skills that Catholic schools kept up, like that kind of um, consistency was good. But being inflexible when it came to governance and human capital and so forth didn't serve them all that well. And so now it looks like some of these lessons of public school change about charters and choice and diverse providers and accountability has made its way into the Catholic school space. And Kathleen's article, I think, just emanates from this kind of change. How do we do things differently with new leadership and a new set of principles? And I, there's a chance that after a half century of mighty struggles uh, in the world of urban Catholic schools, that things could be turning around. And she and some of her um, colleagues in other cities like Philadelphia, Chicago, elsewhere, they may be at the cutting edge of something really quite special. So it's another ongoing set of developments for our listeners to track into 2017, whether this these changes continue to gain a foothold, perhaps in some cases with a push from Washington, D.C., Exactly. Yeah, you could see that if there are more tax credit voucher scholarship accountability systems that do this smartly, especially if there's like a new schools program that the federal government tries to um, push through um, some of these private school choice mechanisms, uh, this could be something exciting, or this could just um, go the way of lots of reforms and just um, fizzle out. But we'll see. I'm cautiously optimistic. Well, Andy, as always, I'm in awe of your reading volume and your erudition in talking about it. Uh, It's been a pleasure to have you on today, and I hope you'll come back at the end of 2017 and tell us what we missed uh, in the 12 months to come. I promise. Thanks for having me. My guest today has been Andy Smerick, whose new blog post, 100 Must Read Articles on the Shape of 2016, is available now at educationnext.org. You've been listening to the EdNext podcast. If you like what you heard, Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. This will be our last episode for 2016, but we'll be back in January with more interviews where we go deeper on the content available in Education Next.
Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.